This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Sherilyn Orbaugh, professor of modern Japanese literature and popular culture at the University of British Columbia. Among Dr. Orbaugh's many edited volumes and publications are Propaganda Performed, Kamishibai in Japan's 15-Year War, published by Brill in 2014, and Japanese Fiction of the Allied Occupation, Vision, Embodiment, Identity, also by Brill in 2007. Dr. Orbaugh, thank you for chatting with me today. It's a pleasure. Could you tell us how the Meiji period appears in your research? These days it doesn't, not very often. But for many years I was working on a couple of projects that had to do with Meiji and Taisho. And in fact, I've been obsessed for about 25 years with the figure of Nogi, Nogi Shizuko, the wife of Nogi Maresuke, or Nogi Taisho, as he's often known. And I'm still working on Shizuko, although not actively. Um, these days, I'm mostly working on manga and anime, and that doesn't take us back to the Meiji period very often. But the projects that had me uh, involved with Meiji before were basically around women's literature, women's education, and women's own conceptualizations of what it meant to be a person, an individual, as we move from Meiji into Taisho, from Bunmei, civilization, into Bunka, culture. And so I worked on a lot of women writing during the Meiji period, and then right at the, the turn from Meiji to Taisho with the Seito group, hmm. the Blue Stocking group. And that was, of course, that same time period was when Nogi Shizuko committed suicide with her husband. And so I was very much interested in the follow-up to all that. What happens in the Taisho period, Showa, wartime, and then even in the post-war period, what happens to the movements that were started by women, literary women and real-life women, during that time? And what happens to the iconical figures like Nogi Shizuko as we move on you know, into Taisho, Showa? I was just, uh, in my class I was talking about the suicide of, of Nogi Marisuke. Mm-hmm. As Not this, Nogi Marisuke and Shizuko? Well, I did. <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> yes, I did, I did talk about that uh, as well. And in fact, uh, pointing out how in a lot of the postcards and commemorative paraphernalia, it's often, you know, they, they put the husband and wife there mm-hmm. together. And on the one hand, the, the death of the Meiji Emperor in, in 1912 in some ways marked the end of this period, mm-hmm. uh, of the Meiji period, starts the Taisho period, which is, is often remembered as this period of liberal democracy mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and uh, Taisho democracy and liberalism and internationalism and Japan's participation and, on the world stage. But then on the other hand, the idea of the general should never die before his lord mm-hmm. bespeaks a kind of militarism mm-hmm. that you see in the 1930s. So mm-hmm. it's actually a very kind of Mm double-edged event. Mm -hmm. The fact that his wife is involved in this as well. Well, actually, the fact that his wife is involved but almost never gets talked about is what fascinates me. Hmm. Because people have written about Nogi, you know, reams and reams and reams. Hmm. Uh, Pretty much every generation has told the Nogi story, Hmm. Nogi Mareske story, their own way. Hmm. And um, as you say, during the war, he was, of course... He was an icon of loyalty for the emperor and a true military man, not begrudging the loss of his own two sons, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, And at earlier times, 
he was something that writers fought against. I mean, he was brought up as, as the icon of the old, traditional ways of thinking that people were trying to get away from. People like Shiganaoya and Octagawa Ginosuke and people like this. But Shizuko, where is she in all this? When women or men are trying to define women's place in various moments of Japanese modernity, she should be part of the discussion, and she's never there. And so this aporia, this, this gap, this Shizuko-shaped gap, fascinates me. And there's a lot about her suicide itself that is completely mysterious and fascinating. I don't know if you know no. about that. No, okay. please explain. <laughs> okay. Um, so you probably know that um, the day before the Meiji Emperor's funeral, so September 12th, yes, September 12th, that would have been, Nogimareske wrote his last will and testament. And in it, several of the items say things like, Shizuko knows where this is, she'll take care of it. Or, after I die, I want Shizuko to do such and such and such. Hmm. So clearly, even though he knew he was going to commit suicide the next day, he did not know that she was. Hmm. Then the next morning, they both dressed in very formal clothing, they got photographs taken. And then that evening, as the funeral procession actually started, it seems that's when they, they did their deed. Shizuko's sister was in the house. She was in the downstairs part. They were upstairs. And she started hearing strange noises at the same time that the cannons were booming for the imperial procession. She went to find a policeman because they found the doors locked. So they, they uh, went to find a policeman. The policeman broke in 15, 20 minutes later, found them both lying in the floor. Moreske had, he was lying on his side in a pool of blood. Shizuko was bent forward with her forehead on the, on the mats. When the official police pathologist came, he, dis he ruled that they were both suicide by sword. And Moreske had used a long sword and done sort of a traditional seppuku with three mm -hmm. shallow cuts on his abdomen, and then he'd severed his carotid artery with, with the sword, kind of thrown himself on it. Shizuko had used, evidently, her, her dagger, which she had as the daughter of a samurai household, but she was stabbed about 17 times, most of the times around her, near her heart, but not at her heart, and died very slowly and probably in agony, is, is the story that, that is told. That's actually what the police report says. So the question is, when did she decide to commit suicide? When did she tell Mareske? Did he even know she was going to commit suicide? Or was she there to witness his seppuku, which is a thing, and then did her own thing later? Which seems kind of likely, because if she was doing it so badly, why didn't he help her? He knows how to kill oneself quickly. So th there's a lot of mystery around just when she made that decision, and then who carried it out, and when did that happen? Who went first? Did he even know? She did leave behind a death poem. So it's clear that she intended some sort of ritual suicide, but in, in honor of whom or in honor of what is also unclear. Mareske left behind two death poems <laughs> in kind of an excessive way, uh, and they both talk about following the emperor in death. It's just classic Junshi traditional ideology. Hers, on the other hand, is about, you know, the imperial procession is going by, but there's no way to meet it. So it's about not being able to connect with the imperial procession. It may just be kind of poetic, what do you call it? Mm -hmm. Just a simple thing to say, you're not thinking about it very much. 
But it may also be a real reflection of her sense that all this magey stuff has nothing to do with me. And this following in death that my husband is doing, nothing to do with me. But it's, it's just really hard to know. So I've been doing all the research I can. Well, I, I haven't done a lot lately, but in previous years I did a lot of research on her life. Any writings that she had left behind, which is not very many, what kind of person she was. And that's all very fascinating, but it doesn't actually get you anything you can use definitively to try to answer those questions. So then I shifted to the other side of it, looking to see what people had done with her death. Because even though the police reports did talk about, did raise these mysterious questions, these questions of you know what she was doing, on who, how she died, um, no one picked that up. That was not the issue. So it really becomes a question of how do women or men who want to make ideological points, how do they use Nogishi's ago? And the answer for the most part is they just don't. And that is astonishing to me. As you say, in postcards, her picture is often there. If you go to Nogi Shrine now, she's mentioned and she's enshrined with Mareske. But every time you try to grasp what it is she means, there's nothing there. I find that fascinating. Especially when the Taisho period and it is also known as this time that we start to see the emergence of the new Japanese woman. And, and along with the rise in consumerism and, and uh, mass media and urban culture in mm-hmm. places like Tokyo, this has a massive impact on gender relations. Mm-hmm. Are there people who would say, well, Nogi Shizuko, maybe she represents this traditional Japanese femininity, the traditional roles of the Japanese wife who is supposed to follow mm-hmm. her husband in death and doesn't really fit the Taisho narrative? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so when I'm looking at the writings of Seito, for example, and they do not mention Nogi Shizuko once, that's only a little bit surprising because she is what they are reacting against. So they could explicitly mention her if they wanted to. Just as, as, as I mentioned a moment ago, um, a lot of the young male writers talked about Nogi, Mareske, you know, and how he is what we are trying to not be. And here's how we're moving forward away from that. You could, Seito could have done the same thing with Nogi Shizuko, and they didn't. Maybe they didn't want to judge her. I really have no idea why. But it becomes more mysterious in the 1930s when that Atarashi Onna, the new woman image, is being refashioned into a one that will fit you know, wartime ideology and imperialism and so on and so forth. And they're looking specifically for images of women who can be held up as you know, the ideal, someone who sacrificed her two sons during the war but didn't regret it. That's, she had four children, but only two lived to adulthood. And so her two sons both died in the Russo-Japanese War. And she never expressed any regret over that. So she would have made a perfect icon. But I have collected, I've been working on Japanese um, propaganda for many, many years now, still am. I've been collecting materials all this time, and I have a particular eye out for nogi materials. She's just not there. It's astonishing. It isn't really until the 70s and 80s that she gets picked up again in a, in a small way as an interesting figure that needs to be interrogated in either film or literature or by, you know, critics. And I find that just astonishing. 
I, I really don't know what to make of them. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't, well, I have, in some of my publications, I've, I've speculated grandly about what this means mm. um, because she's not the only woman of that time period to be sort of silenced or, or having gone mad or dying, and that's all just taken as the norm. Nobody really remarks on it. It's not a dramatic death or madness as it would be if it were a man. It's just kind of what women are supposed to do. Either shut up or die or go be mad somewhere you know, off in, in the woods. And so in some ways she's just like a very strong example of something you see both in literature and in real life that is happening to women at this time. What I've written about this suggests that Part of modernity, kind of the, the concepts of modernity and the discourses of modernity, as we move from Meiji into Taisho, are predicated on this silencing of women or the, the dead bodies of women that are necessary for the narrative but, but not taken up as, as part of it. So there are these silent underlying con- constitutive mm-hmm. factors. And in literature, you can find huge numbers of examples and a sort of the homosocial bonding of men that requires women to be there briefly, give birth to somebody, and then leave or die or go mad. Mm-hmm. Um, I could give you 100 examples of those sorts of things. And, and it does seem to be particularly prevalent during this time. So in a way, her silence speaks volumes. why she gets brought back in the 1970s. I know there was a lot of, this was a time where there was a, a second generation of women's movements, the, the Chupiden movement for the pill mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and other types of post-war movements. It, mm-hmm. it, are those related? That I can't say. Uh, but that's very interesting because, of course, what was happening also in 1910s, 15s, right around the 10 to 15, the time of Seto was a strong push for birth control. Um, and a strong interest in the activities of Margaret Sanger in the U.S. and the U.K. and Ellen Kay in Sweden. Um, and Sato translated their materials, brought in information, et cetera, et cetera. And brought Margaret Sanger yes, to, yes, to, to Japan. Yes, yes, to Japan yeah. um, later on in, what, 20s, 30s, something like that. Um, so similar issues are arising for women, but I think it's in some ways Shizuko never becomes an icon for women either a positive or a negative one. And instead, it's anti-war issues that bring Nogi Moreske back into some focus, and therefore Shizuko, again, as an addendum to that. But there's a, a film, it's 1980, actually, I think, Niyakusan um, Kochi in Japanese, Hill Number 203. It was about a battle from the Russo-Japanese War that was particularly hard fought. And I think this is the battle where Nogi just sent, Nogi Moreske sent waves of soldiers 
up, running up a hill toward the very heavily armed Russians, and so wave after wave of them died, just tens of thousands of men. And um, this idea, you know, in some ways gave birth to the idea of the Japanese spirit that even though these men knew they were going to die, they still ran up without firing into these bullets. So um, I think in the 1970s, people were sort of interrogating that. It had come up, of course, during the um, Second World War when the question was, do we use Western science or do we use, you know, our own great strength, our spiritual strength to overcome our enemies in the Kyoto debates, you know. Um, but in the 70s, it's coming up again in, in sort of a, a new set of questions. And so in this film, Hill Number 203, it's really all about Nogi. And he's played by Nakadai Tatsuya, very compelling, handsome actor. And the question of his war responsibility and how he felt about it is what is being played out. There's a character in the film, a young woman, definitely a Tarashi Onna type, and she's in love with a peace activist who ends up having to go to battle and ends up dying. So there is, we do get the, um, that side of what was happening in late Meiji, the Atarashi Onna and the young idealistic man. And then we get Nogi, 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 Mareske that is, through the whole film. And then we get nine seconds of Shizuka toward the end in a very dramatic moment when Nogi is making a speech to the um, Meiji emperor kind of announcing the end of the war, and people outside are yelling banzai, and everybody's thrilled at the fact that the war is over. And then we have a shot of Shizuko in her house, in her very Japanese-style room, very dark, with just kind of light across her eyes, and she looks almost crazed, almost mad. And it's just a nine-second shot of her eyes unblinking in this room with pictures of her sons. And it's kind of the cost that she has paid, the price she's paid, for this war. And that's all you get. But right at that same time, a number of feminist historians began picking her up as someone we should look at, you know, go back and recover information about her life and see what she was doing. And so that's when people began writing about her as a, as a discrete individual, not just Nogi Moreske's wife. I, I'm not quite sure why it happens at that moment, but I, I think it's a reevaluation of how we got how we got to World War II, mm -hmm. how we became, you know, who we were in the Showa period. And she still only gets a tiny little part. But again, it's that silence, but it's the, the intensity of her silence, just like the intensity of the, the silence and mystery around her death, that's what is being emphasized, whatever it means. And certainly that theme of demands put on women during mm -hmm. the war and how, in many ways, women bore the heaviest burden during mm. the war. Mm. Give mm -hmm. their sons, give away mm -hmm. their brothers, mm -hmm. give away their, their husbands, their mm -hmm. fathers even. Uh, all the while, in many cases, are expected to remain silent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Perhaps just like... Shizuko. Nogi Shizuko. And in many ways, like Shizuko also, um, they, the work that they're doing at home is in some ways very much appreciated. Um, doing fire patrols and you know standing in line for rationed food, growing food themselves, you know, all the little chores that have to be done to keep life going under, a, under terrible circumstances as the war, you know, grew more intense. Um, and, and Nogi Shizuko, too, was an amazing 
amazingly frugal person. And although her husband was a philanderer and a drinker, and she actually left him at one point and lived apart from him for two years with her children, they reconciled, she came back. She was someone who kept the house together mm. and tremendous devotion to her sons, and it, it suggested that her sons were also tremendously devoted to her. They didn't leave behind evidence of that, but in the little artifacts that you see, it, it appears that she was the center of the household. And of course, he was gone a lot. He was governor of Taiwan, all sorts of things. And so when she loses those sons, that really is everything for her. She has lost her life. And it makes perfect sense to me that she would not want to live on after Nogi Maeske because, again, in his will and testament, he says, Shizuko will be in charge of my papers and my reputation. It will all be in her hands. Well, <laughs> what if she doesn't really have anything good to say about her husband or at least doesn't want to support all the things he's famous for, the war strategy in which so many young men died, including her own sons, um, maybe you know suicide made more sense than trying to live on as his surrogate in some way. But just to take us back to World War II, so many women, they were given important roles, just as in a funny way the Meiji Constitution and Civil Code gave women important roles. It restricted them in tremendous ways, but for the first time it said women really matter to the nation and to the construction of the nation. And so if you do your job in that area that we're giving you, the Kinderkuche Kirche, children, church, and kitchen, we will be a stronger nation, all will be better. So women, before we get to Seitos, before we move into the Taisho period, women are, are actually feeling kind of recognized for the first time, I think. And a number of women that I have, real-life women, whose diaries and memoirs I read during World War II really felt that for the first time they had an important role to play, not just in the household, but in the household for society. Holding their home together and helping their neighborhood was actually serving the nation in its moment of crisis. And, but that I, doesn't get talked about much, and so later, how do women look back on that and understand it? I think for a long time women were taken off the hook for their wartime complicity, if that's the right word, their wartime efforts, because they weren't as obvious, proactive as men, and not as violent as, as those of people in the war crimes trials, the men, men who were being tried in those trials. But again, in the 1970s and 80s, feminist historians start looking back and saying, now just wait a minute. <laughs> what were these people doing, and what did they think about it, and how does all of that, how did that silently constitute what was necessary for this war to be engaged in. I'm thinking back to the movies that are made as early as 1946. Under the occupation, one of the policies that SCAP was encouraging filmmakers even to, mm -hmm. to tackle was elevating the status of women. Mm -hmm. So we see a lot of movies that have female protagonists. Mm -hmm. uh, Morning for the Olsone Family, which is uh, a film Kinoshita made just two years after the army, uh, also starring Tanaka Kinuyo, mm -hmm. but now she's the matriarch for the Olsone family. 
but there's there's a female character who's the wife of the uncle, this general who comes in and moves into the house and kind of pushes his way around. And uh, I mean, it's very easy to read this as Kinoshita using the uncle as a metaphor for militarism in mm-hmm, general, who mm-hmm, comes into mm-hmm. the Japanese household and th- starts throwing its weight around. But his wife, it's revealed, is the one who's kind of calling the shot. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. she's the one who says, well, at the end of the war, she's the one who says, well, what's going to happen to us and all of our money? Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking also the, these other films, there's always the scene where, say, the the son gets his his orders to get called up and the wife, you know, shows some hesitation. And there's mm-hmm, always mm-hmm. the old lady from the from the Fujinkai uh-huh. who is saying, oh, we all have to do right. our, our, bit. our bit. And yes. the women get this kind of bad reputation, mm-hmm, it seems mm-hmm. like. Uh, there was, um, during the war, you know, there were these things called bidan, beautiful, beautiful right, stories, right. which were supposedly true anecdotes about real life people right. the but three human bombs that sort of thing Kugas, yeah well there's thing. a lot of them about women and one of the most famous ones is about a woman whose name I don't remember who um, had sent her son off to war and said you know you know go work hard and he gets after he does his training he gets leave to come home before actually going off to the front and he comes home and his mother meets him at the door and says you know what are you doing here until you come back to me as bleached white bones, I never want to see you again. Get out. And this was a beautiful story about how women are supposed to, women are supposed to act. So that's one pattern that women are given. And so evidently the wife in that story is playing that role. Um, the, the women of Sparta. Yes, <laughs> there you go. supposed to save money mm-hmm. to support the war effort lead more frugal lives so that mm-hmm. contribute to the war uh, find ways to keep the family together keep the neighborhood together but then not sent to work mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whereas in the u.s we talk about the war as you know you get these images of rosie the riveter and this mm-hmm. was a, mm-hmm. a time of, of a new type of empowerment of women in mm-hmm. the u.s mm-hmm. where in japan's case they were very reluctant to put women into the factories, even though there are stories of generally high school age girls being Th- that, sent to That may be the difference right there, is right. that it was school age mm-hmm. girls who were doing a lot of this work, either sent out to grow and vegetables you know, as for the boys. And single women, too. Yes, the, yes. The, you know, the lazy women who, <laughs> who were doing married. their part yes. of, of, of being married and, and having children. Right. Um, but, there, you know, photographs of women making balloon bombs and, right. you know, doing things like this are... are common in magazines of the time. So even if there weren't numerically that many women out in labor compared to the UK or the United States, as a, as a part of the discourse, it was important mm-hmm. that women are, are in the factories doing these sorts of things. And there was a bomb dropped on a factory um, south of Tokyo, I think, where women, a lot of young women were doing war work. And this became a, a big story during the war. You know, even our young women are being killed by the heinous enemy, mm-hmm. da, 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 da. So women were an important conceptual mm-hmm. or propaganda element, mm-hmm. even if they weren't as, uh, again, as active as some women were in the UK. But 
there were a lot of women drivers. There were young women who were even training to be pilots. Well, it's the idea everybody has to do their part. And that was, yes. uh, on the one hand, you endure emaciated mm-hmm. endurance, or yasegaman, uh-huh. but then yep. everyone has to do their part to, mm-hmm. uh, to increase production and prepare for the final battle. For married women, it was yes. live a frugal life. Have lots of kids. Have lots of kids. Yeah. Uh, be the factories for mm-hmm. <laughs> the nation, basically. Right. And then for the young women to go into the factories, and then for the young boys and the men to go fight and die for the emperor, basically. Mm-hmm. That's a, I, I was not expecting the conversation to go that direction. <laughs> uh-huh. To the war? Or, or? No, I, uh, I, had, I didn't know you, you had done research on, on Nogi Shizuko. Mm-hmm. I, w- I, was, uh, I read your stuff on Kamishima. Yes, yes, yes. You might yes. be talking about Kamishima. No, I mean, that's what I do now. And, and so I'm still interested in propaganda and how, how the war was figured for different demographics, how different demographics were targeted mm-hmm. during... Um, the run-up to the war and then actu- when people were actually waging the war. Uh, so it, it's all one big project. But I've, on- I've published one article about Nogi Shizuko. I've never tried to do more with it. But I have hundreds of pages of notes, literally, that I was looking at before I came over here. And um, it's one of these days I'm going to have to do something with that, except, again, it's this big silence. What do you do? It's... Wrong methodologically for me to fill in that silence with my own interpretation, but I want to draw attention to it and at least give some sort of speculative ideas about what it means or where it fits in everything else that was happening in that time period. Because even during the Meiji period, you're starting to see changes in gender relations yes. mm-hmm. and changes in the ideas of what what it means to be a woman in Japan. Mm-hmm where in the Tokugawa period it was all, you women are expected to provide labor in the sense of actual manual yes. labor. Uh-huh. They were kind of a, an equal part of the, the farming family where mm-hmm. you know, just right alongside the husband, uh, they would go out into the, mm-hmm. the fields. Mm-hmm. And then in the Meiji period, it starts becoming, well, it's not manual labor, it's reproductive mm-hmm. labor. Mm-hmm. And then mothering mm-hmm. and raising the household and... Right. and if you get educated in the Meiji period as a woman, it's it's primarily so that you can be a good companion mm-hmm. for the husband who's, mm-hmm. you know, who's educated and is contributing to society. And so the woman's part is to and a good mother to your children who you children. know help right. educate them to be good modern citizens. And there's the the tension at that time, very much between uh, the ie, mm-hmm. right, the household that goes on through generations, where the continuation is the point, and the kate the you know, just a single-family household sort of thing that might be based even on a love marriage. And all of this is working itself out in the Meiji period. And um, Nogi Shizuko, it was very much a an arranged marriage. But interestingly, Nogi wanted her because she was from Kagoshima, so she was kind of on the other side of the Satsuma issue. And he specifically wanted that. And... There were elements of their life together that were sort of like the kate and the love marriage and this, the household. They had this wonderful home in Akasaka, in what is now called Nogizaka. It was then called Shinzaka. And she lived a very modern life in many ways. Because he was involved in diplomatic events, she had these gorgeous ball gowns and so on. At the same time, she was very traditionally Japanese in other ways. So she was a complex person living through a complex time. And and negotiating a lot of these larger social tensions. 
and then she dies for reasons we do not understand. But it seems like it would be easy to conclude because she is such a traditional mm-hmm. woman from from Satsuma. But also modern too. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. But the Clearly, you know, a, a good Japanese woman is supposed to follow her husband mm-hmm. in death. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like it's much more complicated. Than that. Well, and that's, of course, what everyone just assumes. Oh, we don't right. have to talk about her because that's what's going on. Right. But if you look at the details of her life and even the details of the end of her life, I think that's not so clear. And it may have been of the various bad options she had at that point, that's the one she decided to go for. All right, I will be the proper samurai wife and follow my husband to death and he's following the emperor I think that still means something and particularly the, the details of the way she went for that choice may be significant The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.